Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free. There's an official app. That too is free. Everything's free. So I count on the support of listeners to help keep things going. If you would like to show some support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, yeah. what a struggle, yeah. you know? Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just one. So, hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Ayobami Adebayo. Her debut novel is called Stay With Me. It is available from Knopf here in the States. Uh, it's been published all over the world. It has been met with rapturous critical praise pretty much everywhere that it uh, has landed. And I uh, just had a delightful conversation with her. She was a lot of fun to talk with. She, uh, she and I spoke by phone or by Skype. She was in Nigeria. I was here in California. And somehow, you know, this technology... It's incredible. You can just have a conversation with someone halfway around the world. And uh, that's coming up in just a moment. Speaking of conversations, it's been a very busy day for me today. I have uh, been talking to people all day long, interviewing people all day long. I think I've done six back-to-back interviews prior to this moment. Uh, The day started with uh, me conducting an interview with uh, a person who will be a guest on a future episode of this program. Does that make sense? So I talked to an author this morning, had a conversation with that author. You will be hearing that conversation in the weeks to come. I then had to drive over to my daughter's school and interview a bunch of people for this book project that I have volunteered for uh, as a parent. You know how parents do that? You volunteer at your kid's school to participate in a project. 
And uh, they're doing a book to mark the 50th anniversary of the school. And so I volunteered to help. Part of my responsibilities include talking to uh, alumni, administrators, students, former students, uh, you name it. And then we're going to, you know, edit it, put it in a book. It's going to be kind of an oral history. There's going to be pictures. There's going to be graphics. There's going to be drawings. You know what I'm talking about. So I uh, have been doing that. I have been involved in this project going back to last spring. And uh, about a week and a half ago, I reached out to a woman who I had, you know, I was supposed to have interviewed her over the summer. And uh, she lives on the East Coast. So we were going to do it by phone. We were emailing back and forth. We set up a time and I had it in my calendar on my computer, but my calendar on my computer for some reason did not sync to my phone. And when that happens, like I basically, you know, if it's not in my phone, I don't know what's going on. So I completely spaced doing the interview and I realized it, uh, you know, like, like it was like a day or two later, it was really bad. And very not, and very much not like me. Like I'm, I'm one of those people who's on time. I think I've talked about this on this show before. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'm there. And uh, I like to be that way. I don't like to be flaky. So uh, I felt terrible. I emailed this woman. I didn't hear back from her. I basically said, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry. My calendars didn't sync. Blah blah blah." And uh, I didn't hear back. So I figured. Ugh. I just screwed that one up. I damaged that uh, situation beyond repair. I don't know what else to do. I don't know this woman. I have no you know, pre-existing relationship. I tried to apologize. It didn't work. I screwed up. I have to live with that. So then the summer, you know, the summer unfolds. The summer comes and goes. The school year starts up again. Uh, that means that a lot of the, the uh, you know, the people involved in this project start to get reactivated. Uh, I start to line up more interviews and, uh, you know, I decided, why, why don't I try to reach out to this woman again to see if we can reschedule? Like, let me give this another shot because while I did make a mistake, it was an honest mistake. I goofed, I spaced it. it. You know, hopefully it's not the end of the world. Hopefully there is some forgiveness possible here. So I emailed this woman and I said, you know, I'm sorry again, I'm still working on this project. Is there any possible way we can, we can give this another shot? And she very uh, graciously emailed me uh, a reply and said, of course, thank you for reaching out. You know, I'm sorry for the mix up. Like she was apologizing to me <laughs> for uh, screwing up. So, you know, uh, this is about a week and a half ago. I'm like, let's set up a time. I will do, you know, we, we can schedule it at your convenience. Like you pick a time. So she picked 5 p.m. on Sunday, so like 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. She's like, let's do it then. She sent me a calendar invite because I think she's like, I got to micromanage this guy. <laughs> like she sent me a calendar invite. There's like alerts and whistles and like, you know, I'm going to get notified that this is happening. So she sends me the calendar invite. I accept. I thank her. I say, we're, you know, we're on for Sunday. I'm very excited about this. Thank you again. I look forward to talking with you. And uh, then uh, last Sunday at about 6 p.m., I, I can tell you, I was standing in my bathroom and it suddenly occurred to me like, oh my God, I forgot about the interview. And I might, like my heart sank immediately. I, I felt like physically ill. I was like, oh my, I, I could not believe it. I, can, I could not believe that I did it again. 
So I, you know, I reach for my phone, I open it up, I flip to the calendar, I'm searching through the, you know, the day, the hours of the day, there's no notification on my phone. It didn't sync. So, you know, I'm, I am uh, in, a, in a kind of uh, very, you know, I'm in a panic. It's a mild panic, but it's a panic. You know that feeling when you, when you screwed up twice. It's just like, it's beyond the point where it's even remotely acceptable. And I just felt awful. So I, I uh, immediately go to email this woman who shall remain nameless to protect her identity. <laughs> and uh, I, I, use, I use a voice to text because I'm, I'm too upset to type on my phone. I'm like, I got to get this out. So I'm using voice to text. I send this woman like a 600 word apology. Just gushing. Like, I'm so sorry. I, this is inexcusable. I feel like such an idiot. It, my, I am having technological difficulties with my iCal. The calendar did not sync. Even, that, even though it did not sync, I'm not using that as an excuse. It's not an excuse. I'm just explaining to you what happened. I feel terrible. I don't even know what to say. Uh, please forgive me. I'm sorry. P.S. I'm sorry. And I hit send. So now it's like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. I'm starting to wind down, but I still feel restless. I still feel edgy. I still feel bad about this. It's bothering me. I didn't, you know, I haven't heard back from the woman. I'm checking my email. There's nothing. But I'm telling myself, you know, it's the East Coast. She's probably already in bed. She probably just like wrote me off, went to bed. Forget this guy. I'm going to bed. So I get into bed eventually. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I can't sleep. I got to send another email to this woman and say just one more quick, <laughs> just got to say like a quick, like, Hey, I just, I feel sick. I'm so sorry that I spaced it again. And so I did. And I hope I don't sound like a nut, you know, but it was like a quick two sentence, like PS number two, I feel sick. I am so sorry about this just to make sure, <laughs> just to make sure it was clear. So then I go to sleep, I drift off, I am able to drift off, but it is a fitful sleep. I am tossing uh, and turning. It's one of those things where like I slept pretty decently for a couple hours and then I snapped awake and then I started thinking about it. And then it was hard for me to get back into any kind of deep sleep because I was just obsessing about it, just thinking about it, like, ugh. And I'm not one of those people who, when he wakes up in the middle of the night, has an easy time getting back to bed. And this just made it, you know, uh, doubly the case. So eventually I just said, uh, you know, forget about it. I'm just going to get up. I got up at like five in the morning. Like sleep was not happening. It's just, I'm going to get up. I'm just going to start my day. I go for a hike. It's like sunrise, I'm like all contemplative and morose. It's not, there's no response, you know? And so I'm just like walking in the hills of, uh, you know, above Los Angeles. The sun is coming up trying to gather my energies for another week at work, trying to get everything situated, trying to make myself uh, feel, like, I guess, even like remotely okay about uh, this latest uh, goof. And I was on my way back from the hike, like driving back across town. I got to get home. I got to get ready for work. Got to get to work. And I'm stopped at a red light. And what do I do? I look down at my phone. I open up email and there's a message from this woman. And she says, Brad, 
like relax. Uh, you know, we're not even, we weren't even scheduled for yesterday. We're scheduled for next Sunday. Like, take it easy on yourself. <laughs> so, uh... I forget what I even... Re- I, don't, I forget how I even responded. But it, it involved, like, me laughing at myself and just being like, I'm obviously not well. Obviously in need of uh, medical attention immediately. trying to forgive myself you know I'm like I'm a good person I'm trying to be on time trying to work a day job be a dad host a show uh, read books take care of myself do all the things that I'm doing volunteer at school be a participating uh, parent in the school community sometimes things happen sometimes you mix up on schedules it's defensible that I would be a little bit uh, discombobulated with regard to my calendar So, uh, the point is, I'm recording this on a Saturday. Tomorrow, I will be conducting, God willing, I will be conducting this interview. And I will be interested to see uh, what what the mood is. Like, what does this woman think of me at this point? (laughs) I feel like she's going to approach with caution. I feel like, uh, I'm like, you know, I'm suspect in her eyes. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So uh, my guest is Ayobami Adebayo. Her debut novel is called Stay With Me. I had a really nice time talking with her. And I should say, too, I was on time uh, for the interview. I, I, I called her at the scheduled time uh, all the way in Nigeria. And she was just wonderful uh, to hang out with for an hour. And I, I know you guys are going to feel the same way. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ayobami Adebayo. And her book, One More Time, is called Stay With Me. It began as a short story um Almost 10 years ago now, yes, um, I was in my final year in the university and I'd written this short story. I was going to submit it for a competition 
And I was just unsatisfied with it. So I'd written what was basically a scene with a, a couple and they were at the end of their relationship and they were having what I thought of as the final argument. And that was the story. It was this last argument before they both gave up on the marriage. And um, I'd written everything. It was mostly dialogue and I'd, I had everything on the page. But I just had this strange feeling that there was something they were sort of gesturing at but not quite saying and but which they both understood but I couldn't so I remember very vividly I decided to take a walk it was about 3am I was living on campus at the time so I decided to just walk and think about this story I was working on at 3 in the morning and I remember Yes. Um, yeah, I'm kind of nocturnal, so I do stuff like that. So I remember where I was standing. And I mean, the campus environment was quite safe. So I, I did stuff like that when I was in school. I'll just get up at three and just take a walk. So I just, I remember where I was standing when I just, I mean, it was like half of this novel just came to me. And I thought, oh my God, this this is not a short story, but I I didn't feel I was ready to write a novel yet. I I didn't I just didn't feel I could write a novel, so I just wrote everything down and let it sit for two more years. And then after two years, I thought, well, I have to start writing a novel now, or I might never do it. So I started working on this book. Okay, so okay, so wait, let me stop you. Mm. Let me let me stop you because this mm-hmm. is you're standing on campus at three in the morning. Yeah. Where like are you? Is like can you describe the weather? Was the moon out? Like what were the circumstances that suddenly this entire book uh, occurs to you? And like I, you know, I'm always curious because this does happen sometimes where an entire novel um, or at least like the main architecture of a story will mm-hmm. will will occur to someone very rapidly. And so it, it, I'm always like trying to drill down into that experience and get a feel for what it was actually like. Like, how did that occurrence actually materialize? Like, what was the substance of it? Was it people? Was it characters? Was it a scene at the end of the book? Was it just some weird, like, magical totality? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. So it was. It was. Um... It was pretty dark. I don't think I can't remember the moon being out, but there were a lot of street lights, you know. So it was also bright. So there was, I mean, so I was standing at um, sort of a zebra crossing. I'd crossed over to the other side, and I was standing in front of the hall where the characters would meet in the novel, and I hadn't written that yet. So I was standing there, and sometimes I talk to myself when I'm trying to figure things out with a story or a book, you know, so I'm just asking myself questions like what is wrong with them? What are they talking about? And, um, and I, and I'm like, why can't they say these things, you know? And I just all of a sudden knew, Oh, this is what they're trying to say. And this is why they're never going to say these things. And I think, you know, sometimes, um, a single event can just flip a whole book and that's what happened with the story that I, I thought I was writing a, a certain story and then I realized that it was very different, that all, all of these things had happened and they couldn't talk about it because of this and this. So there was 
I, I think the meat of it sort of just came and the knowledge of um, a bit of their backstory that they had met on that campus, yes, and in that place where I was standing. I, and I think it was also, uh, also possibly because, I mean, there were people walking around and it, it's, it's a campus where people study at night and go to classrooms and study and then are returning to their hostels around 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. I was going to say, how, how, many, how, many, <laughs> how many kids on this campus are conceiving novels at 3 a.m. while walking around campus? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, and sometimes you can see someone working with their girlfriend or something. And so, yes, there was a bit of that going on around me. And it, it just all came together in that moment, you know, for you, some reason. I wish I knew because then I can reproduce it. Well, do you do you ascribe, I mean, because uh, do you ascribe like a magical uh, significance to that kind of moment of creativity, or is it is it uh, less is it less like uh, supernatural than that for you? No, I I really I mean it feels special, and I, in some ways I I I I want those moments to happen, but sometimes I feel that those moments are are earned, like I had to write that first draft and the second draft and the third draft before I could have that moment, you know. I feel that if I hadn't actually written something and I'd gone for a walk, <laughs> I would never have had those ideas. I don't know, but it's just the way I feel. I feel like I need to show up and do something and then some magic might happen. I... I think probably just once that I've had that kind of experience without having had to work repeatedly at something and feel uh, gotten to a point where I felt frustrated and then I took a break and then this happens. You know, so I don't know if that, I don't know if it's true. Maybe I just need to feel that I deserve it. <laughs> so I, I feel like I need to work and then when it happens, I'm like, yes, yes, this is as it should be. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense because you got to let this. You've got to let this thing kind of work on your subconscious level, um, and then maybe you have that moment of intuition or inspiration or whatever because it's had the time to kind of uh, marinate. Yeah, I think so. I think that's that's very important. So, um, did you go into university wanting to be a writer of fiction? Was that your aim? Um, I went into university. Yeah, I think so. Yes. I mean, I wanted to write fiction, but then I went in to study literature because I wanted to be a critic. And somehow I didn't make the connection between choosing to study literature and wanting to write fiction um, until people started asking me about that. So I, I went in wanting to write, but until, I mean, throughout my time in the university I felt like um, it was a separate pursuit you know like it was not directly related to the thing I was doing at 3am by myself you know so you wait you didn't you didn't correlate taking 3am walks around campus thinking about characters with wanting mm -hmm. to write um, I did but I didn't correlate study literature you know, with wanting to write. I studied literature because I wanted to teach literature. And I was, writing was 
sort of more personal to me and it was what I wanted to do but I just didn't connect it with the fact that I had decided to study of all things literature you know so okay so you say it's a I mean and I think literature and the writing of it in some way is always deeply personal but you are a university student and you have these two characters who are in a relationship and it's a difficult mm-hmm. relationship I guess it begs the question like were you in a difficult relationship <laughs> at the time <laughs> Goodness, was I? Well, I was in one. I, I, I don't think it was difficult at that time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think he was very joyful and young and a little bit foolish at that time. But no, I wasn't actually in, in a difficult relationship. Because but I was in a relationship. Yeah. Well, no, but this is this is an interesting question or an interesting point to make. Is that you know you're very young. You're, are you, you're still in your, are you still in your twenties? Yeah. Okay. So that's, I mean, especially in, uh, in a literary context, that's very young to be, um, publishing and to be publishing this well. And some of the things that you took on in the book, um, seem, or at least I, I guess could conceivably be seen as uh, beyond your years or, you know, like for somebody in their early twenties to be able to capture so many difficult, um, I don't know, human experiences and uh, so much, uh, so many issues of such thematic weight. We're talking about issues of infertility, talking about issues of, um, uh, I don't know, like the cultural um, weight that these characters have to carry around. Like it's a, it's a lot to sort of wrap your head around. And I'm just curious to know, like, like how do you conceive of where this story came from within you? You know, why were these things on your mind? (laughs) Um, you know, I, one, I mean, to, to, to speak to being young, uh, when this book was about to come out and I had to face the reality that my uncles and my aunties would read this thing, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I wrote this when I was really young and a little bit stupid, <laughs> you know, that's why I thought, you know, I could do anything, you know, so that, that I, I did have that moment when I thought, Oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, I think that uh, there were there were certain aspects of it that I'd sort of observed and had questions about. And I think that the, one of the central things, the central themes, is the idea of motherhood and being a parent and how that can define a person and how a society can define and um, place so much value on that and sort of reduce a person's value to that singular function. And if I were to sort of think about how that could have related to me when I was 20 and, you know, not thinking about those things yet, I guess I was, I was in my final year of university and sort of at the point where it would become acceptable for people to ask me questions like, so what are your marital plans, you know, now that you're done with university? And maybe I was sort of preempting that in writing a sort of um, cautionary tale kind of thing about this trajectory that's often... um, position as the only one that exists for you as 
a young person or as a woman. So where does it come from? I think it's a mix of just some of the things I saw growing up and which did not make any sense to me. Um, how people would be married for a certain number of years without children and somehow it's always the woman's problem. She's always the tragic figure in this situation and how it's even a tragedy in the first place, how sometimes people choose not to imagine that these people could actually be happy, you know, without having all the things you think they need to have to be happy. So it was sort of trying to grapple with all of that and make sense of it and I think it's one of the reasons why I write it's to, to understand the things that don't make any sense to me and um, just a curiosity about human beings and how on earth we do some things and why so it, it, I think it, some of it comes from that place so a natural question then would be, uh, like having gone through the process of writing this book and having explored all of these uh, different themes through these characters, like did you land at a place where you do have a better understanding of this kind of cultural and societal expectation that not just in Nigeria, but all over the world um, can be placed mm -hmm. on people and on women in particular, I think, where there is this expectation of motherhood and there is often this... Uh, this uh, idea that is presented or implied that one cannot be a full person or one cannot be, uh, you know, fully happy unless they bear children. Mm. Like where, where, yeah. where do you, where do you stand on it now having written the book? Oh my, I, I think that, um, I mean, what I feel about it is that it's, it's, these expectations are just not realistic because there will be people who, even if they want to, cannot have biological children. And there are people who don't want to have children and shouldn't because they don't want to. <laughs> so, you know, shouldn't and probably really shouldn't, you know, since they don't want to. Um, so I, I think it's just unrealistic, but it, still it persists. You know, and it, it, it then brings up the question of why does this persist, even with people who obviously see that it's it's not a realistic expectation. And I, I think that, that desire sometimes and that expectation that other people have is probably not unconnected with um, sort of this desire maybe or fantasy we have of the, to live on you know in some way somehow forever and ever um you know i don't think it's unconnected to a kind of longing for immortality and the idea that you can then continue to live vicariously through children and then grandchildren or whatever and that people, and then I think also sometimes it's difficult for people to admit to themselves, maybe people of an older generation who have become so invested in a certain way of life and have maybe made sacrifices because they convinced themselves that this was the only way for the world to be. 
to accept that their whole life <laughs> could have been a lie, and that, and then what, 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 what point? I mean, what was the point of the sacrifices they made? So I think that sometimes people want to perpetuate certain ideas because to admit that those ideas are not the only way to negotiate life is to admit that they might have wasted their own lives. Does that make any sense? No, it does. It does. I mean, I, I have two kids, and if I'm being honest, like, you know, I can think to myself, you know, because, like, one never really, I don't think, fully understands exactly why one does things, whatever it is. You know, it's very hard to have, like, full, complete knowledge of oneself, you know? Yeah. Even, even though we, we very easily can convince ourselves that we do. And so mm. when I look back on it, like on the decision to have children, it's something that I, I sort of always felt I would do. And I don't know if that's mm. because I had some innate sense of mission or uh, biological programming or it's because I had... Um, a happy family life growing up and, mm -hmm. you know, just wanted to replicate that or some combination yeah. thereof. But um, I can sometimes look back on it and be like, well, yeah, you know, we, we made the decision. We wanted to have a family. We wanted to bring some love into the world. And I can mm -hmm. see, I can see it through that lens. And I mm -hmm. wanted my life to be about more than just like my needs and my wants. And I wanted there to be, yeah. you know, that I wanted that sacrifice. You know what I'm saying? I wanted mm -hmm. to live in service of, um, my children and all that kind of stuff. And then I can also sometimes stop and be like, you know, human beings just as a biological matter are programmed mm. to, um, you know, reproduce because we want our genes mm. to survive. Like we're sort of like, you know, yeah. I can see it from like the, um, the kind of, uh, automatic or robotic, uh, perspective as well. And I can sometimes be like, mm. wow, did I lack the proper depth of thought that a decision so pivotal, um, would seem to require. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did I give it the kind of meditation that I really should have? And, you know, it can be very easy to sort of fall into that mindset as well and like question myself and question the depth of my being and the decisions that I made, not only in the context of having children, but in, in pretty much every context. Like, I'm, I'm very good at second-guessing myself, Ayabami. I'm, I'm a master at it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and I, I think that it's, it's interesting that you say that, and it's, it's interesting that you have that moment and, and that you look back. And I think that's even, I think even that is a good thing, because sometimes I feel like you're just expected to do this, you know, because... It's what has been done. And I don't know. I just feel, you know, I might still want to do this, but I want to ask questions first. Yeah. And just be sure, you know, and that it's okay if 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 you feel um, like it's a natural instinct and then you that's just what you do because that's, that's the trajectory you can see for your life. But to then sort of impose it as the truth it's i feel like that's problematic well and there is there is like you know like like you uh portray in your book there are really serious familial pressures that mm -hmm. uh you know come down on people where you know the mother or the mother-in-law or the father or the father-in-law or some combination thereof are nudging you and saying well when are we going to have grandchildren when are you going to have kids like this is you can't be fully happy unless you have kids and it you know you like those kinds of pressures can be really onerous because uh, no, no matter what we may think of our in-laws or no matter what the um, 
state of our relationship with our parents, their opinions tend to really matter to us and have an effect on us. Yes, because I think that ultimately, whether consciously or subconsciously, you believe that these admonitions are coming from a place of love, you know, and therefore it, it makes it easy even to second guess your own happiness. Like, I'm happy, but there are nine people in my family who keep telling me, no, you're not. <laughs> you <know? laughs> At a point, you're going to ask yourself, okay, am I happy? You know, and, and that kind of pressure can be intense. Um, not even just from family members, even from strangers, people who attended your wedding, who meet you two years later and look at you like, ah, oh, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you don't have a child. I think it can be difficult even to just step away from all of that and say, you know what, I have, I'm, we're happy and maybe this hasn't happened yet. Maybe we really want it to happen, but we're good with each other. You know, it, it can be difficult to sort of have that highland where you're both okay with yourself. Well, this is it. This is the, this is the question. This is what the, the strikes me as like at least one of the central questions is, is, what does it mean to be happy? Ha. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and, um, and it's how, how, how much of it is, is, can you achieve as an, as an individual, you know, without the support of your community, you know, that, uh, and particularly in a very communal community, you know, how much, can your happiness be about you <laughs> and not satisfying the expectations of everybody else? Mm. What does it mean to be happy? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it really is a good question because, you know, there's like, especially in America, I don't know if it's like this in Nigeria, but in America, mm. you know, you ask somebody how they're doing just casually and it's always like, mm. I'm great. I'm awesome. Yeah. Everything's amazing. <laughs> And I'll find myself sort of being like, really? Did I, did like, I'll, I, sometimes I say that. And I'm like, did I just say, did I just tell the barista at Starbucks that I'm doing awesome at 6.30 in the morning? <laughs> like, is that really necessary to go to those extremes? Like, I guess the larger point that I'm driving at in some sort of like roundabout way is that, you know, while you can't live your life constantly trying to evaluate your happiness in the context of what other people might think of you, you also cannot be happy without making other people happy, meaning that at least to some extent, you have to live your life in service of other people and that the true source of happiness is in making other people happy. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. And, and I think perhaps um, the, the thing is to have a balance, you know, that you, you do have to sever others. A, 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 a then you just become this really selfish person. Um, but I mean, the other thing I was thinking about, <laughs> which I don't know, probably would sound very dark and miserable, is I think about, is this in the Declaration of Independence or something where it talks about the pursuit of happiness? And is that, is that in, is that in that? Oh, did I just... Yeah, life, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And, and the pursuit of happiness. And I, I think, and I've talked before and about whether that's the point, that the point is the pursuit of it, which sounds very sad. But um, 
No, that makes I sense. Yeah, no, no, I get it. And, and it's also like, <laughs> it also, and listen, we could spend an entire hour on this, I feel like, because it is one of those things that I think we hear uh, in context, whether you're an American and someone's talking about the pursuit of happiness or you're in, mm. Ni- you're in Nigeria and someone's telling you that you can't be happy unless you do mm. X or, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that human beings the world over are all considering their happiness in some way, shape or form, but we don't often drill down into what in the heck that means or what the pursuit of happiness should even look like. Does that mean you're pursuing your individual whims and your, your sort of self-focused, um, you know, in some, I don't know, not a, maybe extreme way, or does it mean that you're living a life of service and sacrifice? Is that what mm. happened? You know, it would, it, it would be worthwhile to maybe figure out what the hell it means. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, two words come to mind right now, and I think fulfillment and satisfaction. And I'm thinking about um, my own happiness, like when am I happy, you know? And... Um, I think, I mean, I like, I think that I'm most happy when I get things done, you know, and I, I'm able to tick things off my to-do list, you know, that, that makes me happy. Um, not necessarily what, I don't know, I mean, like, going out and sort of maybe having a night out is, is not what I ordinarily think would make me happy. I'm surprised when it does, you know. But um, I don't know. I think it in, 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 in some ways it, it needs to be something that that's it, it, there's, there's an individual aspect to it and there's a communal aspect to it and that you do things for other people that bring you some satisfaction, you know. Like I have some of my cousins are very little, you know, I love to get them things because they look happy when I do. And, you know, it, it makes me feel good. And, um, but there's also that individual aspect to it because personally, I've, I mean, I've had people say to me, Oh, you must be very bored. Oh, you, 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 you're not having any fun in your life. And I'm thinking, I'm cool. You know, I'm, I'm in a good place right now. I'm having, <laughs> I'm happy, you know. You're like, I I was doing fine until you showed up and started critiquing me. Yeah, (laughs) you know. So there's there's that, I think there's there's always that individual aspect to it. And being able to sometimes make peace with that, that, you know what, I don't really need to join you for a football game to be happy. I know that it's what everybody wants to do and it's cool. But I would just be frustrated. No, I, I get it. I'm I get really it. Well, it's like, uh, you know, the um, going you mentioned earlier, like going out uh, to a party or doing something social and then, you know, being surprised when it's a really good time. Mm. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can completely I'm relate to that. Surprised. <laughs> yeah, I can completely relate to that. I'm like, wow, I went out to a party and actually enjoyed myself like that was because uh, a lot of the time I can feel like it's a little bit onerous. There's a lot of small talk or. Uh, you know, I never know where to stand or I feel like the person I'm talking to is sort of bored or whatever it is, but maybe that's my own issues. I don't know. No, I don't think it is. I mean, I I just, it's just, (laughs) it's a little bit terrifying. And um, I just, it's 
it's I don't know. It's it's just awkward, you know. Um, you have to talk to people, and then you know. <laughs> I don't know, but. You know, sometimes you do it and you're like, wow, that was not so bad. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think it's just you. Um, Maybe it's just like a, fun, like a function of personality. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, context matters, all this stuff. I mean, I'm, like, I'm not a complete shut-in and I, you know, I, can have mm. a good, I can have a good time socially. But I feel like, mm. I, I guess the, the larger point is that, and this speaks to your book, is that there's this this weight of expectation. Like, what you don't want to do uh, this? Like, what's wrong with you? You would rather stay home and read a yeah. book and read a book or write a book or just be alone. Like, is that 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 can be okay too, right? Yes, you know, I I worked um, I worked in a research institute for <laughs> about three years, and during break, I mean, I would cook breakfast. I. I I would just sit at my desk and have lunch on my own. And over and over, I would have people come in and be shocked by this and sort of sometimes sit down with me for an hour because they felt sorry for me or something. And I'm really thinking to myself, I'm actually enjoying this one hour alone before my colleagues come back. So yes, I mean I, I I did I mean I think I got a lot of that growing up and coming into my own as an adult. Sort of, you need to more shoshibo, you need to go out, you need to go to the party and all of that. And I think I also had a phase of sort of doing it and just feeling very miserable and <laughs> you know, just, and just coming to the point where I'm like, you know what, I was happy before. <laughs> I'm just going to go back to that. Right, right. You got to know your, you know yourself, and and now you have enough. You have evidence. You've given it a try. You've been to the party. You've gathered the, yeah. the necessary evidence. Like the verdict is in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for now, you know. Who knows what happens in the next decade? <laughs> well, but I have to believe with the success of this book that you have had to be out there uh, traveling and have had to do things like this where you're talking to people and you're giving readings. And I mean, has that been, has that part of it been fun for you? Yeah. Um, I'm learning to enjoy, the, enjoy that um, aspect of it. Um, I think it's, it's always a little bit um, terrifying. Um, I don't know why. It's just um, I, I think that a book can be a very personal thing and um, there's, there's a bit of anxiety that comes with it going out, out into the world and there's another kind of anxiety that comes with meeting people who have read it. You know, I don't know. It's I've, I've I've had a bit of fun, but I think I just always go in a little bit afraid of how things might go, and things have actually gone pretty well. So maybe I'm just a little bit paranoid. <laughs> it's nothing. Wrong. It's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, so let's talk about um, let's talk about like where like where you're from and like where you come from. And what your childhood was like, and how you got to the point where you, you know, started writing in university. So, 
First of all, where were you born? Um, so I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and um, shortly after that, my parents moved. They were both working in Lagos at the time. And then my father changed the jobs and they both moved um, to a city called Elisha, which is about four hours away from Lagos. And then we spent the next six, seven years there. And then we moved again, um, just 30 minutes away. And then my family was there, has been there since uh, that time. And um, what did your parents do? Um, so my father was an economist. I mean, he studied economics, um, and he first of all worked. He worked with first of all with um, Lever Brothers, which is now Unilever. That's where he was working in Lagos um, as in marketing management and stuff. And then he, when he moved to Elisha, he was working with um, Nigerian international bureaus as uh, the marketing director or something. So that was my father. My mother is a doctor. And when I was young, she was doing a residency training in radiology. And she's now an associate professor um, at the university in Ife. Oh, wow. Okay. So and what about siblings? Um, yes, I have a younger sister who's studying medicine and will be writing her final exams very in about a couple of weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, good luck to your sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, where does the where does the literary gene come from in your family? Huh. Um, I think that um, now both of my parents. A read and my father is late now, but they're both readers. Uh, but my mother, I think, is the one who probably had has the literary gene. And you know, we have this sort of culture. Is it culture? It was just. It's just the way the school system is set up. That if you're particularly bright, you're encouraged to go into the sciences, and you're encouraged to study medicine. You know, and you know, you just go in. And I remember when I was a teenager that at a point my mother considered leaving medicine because she felt that. She was more interested in the humanities, so she, she, she. I mean, I think perhaps because I've lived with her longer, because my father passed away, she reads avidly, and I think that she might still write. You know, she. I mean, we're chatting, and she was talking about she wanted to open up a blog, blog, and all of that. I, I mean, I wonder if the, the the education system wasn't that way. You know, I wonder if she might have studied literature like I did. But I think I think the good side of that was that when I decided to study literature, she supported me because there was a pushback from my school, you know, like I was wasting my life or whatever. But I think because of that, my mother was, no, let her do what she wants. This is what she really wants to do. Mm -hmm. And then my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, my grandfather was a fantastic storyteller. 
you know, when I was younger, I would go some. I I spent some time with my grandpa. I would spend some time with my grandparents because um, we were living in Elisha, which was a very small town. And sometimes my parents would sort of go away to Lagos together and leave me with my grandmother. So um, I would sort of hound her, and she tells she still tells the story. She was running a business. She had a store, and I would keep telling her, tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story. Because there was this storytelling tradition for children, and I just wanted her to do nothing but tell me stories. But she did not like telling stories. And it took a very long time for me to figure out that it was my grandfather that I should have gone to. And I realized that when I was in my late teens, what a fantastic storyteller he was, how interested he was in history and how much of it he knew. And for a very long time, whenever we went to visit them, I would just sit in his living room and just listen to him talk. You know, he was, it was really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's funny. I was, like when you were talking about that, it was, I was thinking of my daughter who is seven years old. And like one of her, one of the things she consistently comes back to me and asks me about is to is for me to tell her stories of how I got in trouble when I was a kid. She's ob- oh. she's ob- she's obsessed with knowing these stories, <laughs> and so I will tell her from time to time. I'll I'll remember something or I'll tell her, and then what I find is that she remembers every single detail mm-hmm. and will you know c- come back at me with those details at like really inopportune moments. yeah, she's got all sorts of goods on me. But kids, you know, yeah. kids love to be like, that's one of the things that having kids, not that I'm pressuring you to do this, but I'm just saying <laughs> one of the things that having kids teaches you is that like children really love to be told stories. Like it's just innate, yeah. innate. And they, you, and they can yeah. listen and, and focus and absorb to a degree that is enviable and uh, sort of amazing. Mm. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I remember I was obsessed with, been told stories when I was young. It was just, I mean, I frustrated my grandmother because she just did not enjoy doing this. And I just kept insisting. (laughs) So did you think to yourself as a kid, uh, I want to be, I mean, it sounds like it, you were like, I want to be a writer, or at least I want to, I want to be involved in the humanities and in literature. Hmm. I, I remember when I was nine, because it was my first year of secondary school, which I think is high school in the U.S., that I was writing pretty consistently. And I, 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 I wasn't thinking about becoming a writer, but I knew that I had all these new notebooks that I was supposed to fill with um, math and geography and I mean, whatever it was we were being taught. And I would just fill them with poems. And there was one day one of the teachers caught me. You know, she was teaching us and we were supposed to be taking notes and I was writing poetry. And she took me to the staff room and I was punished and I was admonished and I was reported to my mother. <laughs> then there was a whole bit of drama around it. It was the most trouble I got into. <laughs> for what? For writing For writing poetry? Yes, when I was supposed to be copying something else, maybe paying attention in math class or something. And so I remember I was doing that. I'm not, and I remember that I did not stop. Um, that most of 
when I was 9, 10, 11, I really wasn't listening to whatever it was they were saying in school because I was just writing things down, you know. And I remember one day my mother went through my notebooks and she said, what do you do in school? Like, there's nothing here. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I was still able to manage because I could read very fast and I had textbooks and I could just catch up somehow. So I was doing that. And um, I think it was when I was about 16 that I wrote the, a short story that I just, after that, felt that, yes, I'm going to be a writer, you know. And um, there was this vacation we had. It was a long holiday. And um, I'd won a couple of prizes in school, and they'd given me really big notebooks, you know. And so I decided to write a novel and I wrote a collection of short stories. I think this was when I was 14 or something. But I, I, that was just something I did. You know, I was just doing it and doing it. But I think it was when I was about 16, I wrote a short story that felt mature. I don't know. I, I can't tell you why I thought it was mature. But I just felt, okay, I'm a real writer. I can do this. What was it about? Um, Ah, <laughs> it was weird. So it was about a girl who was in the university and um, she'd become a prostitute. So this is what I was writing when I was 16. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. I'm starting to be able to diagnose this. Like you, in your writing, are always like anticipating your future and like working out <laughs> questions you have about your future. That seems like not an absurd thing for a 16-year-old girl who's, you know, going through adolescence, looking to her future, would be looking at university, leaving home, right? Mm. I mean, is that does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes sense, but my mother was worried for a while. <laughs> like, where is this coming from? Yeah. You know, I think that's that's why I was laughing when you asked me where does this come from? Like, yes, my mother started to sit me down and she asked me this question, <laughs> which I would never forget. Have you had a happy childhood? <laughs> and I said, yes. And she said, so why are you writing <laughs> all of this, you know, at 16? I think I would be worried if I was a parent. And I think he was also quite vivid, you know. Um, yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, I don't know why. But, yeah, that's what I was writing at 16. So I wrote that story and I thought, yes. This, make, makes, me, this makes me wonder what you're going to write in your 30s. Like, what are you going to write? I mean, it's going to be... Uh... It's going to be about, uh, I'm thinking about like a 40-something-year-old person. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, man. Oh, goodness. Okay, so you go to university. Let's let's bring this full mm. circle. You go off to university. Yeah. Where did you go to school? Um, so it's called, I mean, it's, it was the University of Ife. So it's still in Ife. So I go to, I don't really go to, I go to university, but. My mother teaches at the university, so uh, I mean, I'm living away from home, but it's 30 minutes. I mean, it's 15 minutes away from home, so yeah. Okay, so you go, but you go there and you write this short story mm. in um, mm -hmm. in a writing class, and then mm. you you take this this fateful walk on campus at three o'clock in the morning, mm. where the mm. the entirety of Stay with Me sort of mm. comes to you, but then. 
you told me that you let two years go by. Like two years mm-hmm. went by between that walk on campus at three in the morning and when you actually set to work on the novel. So I guess my question yeah. is, you know, what happened during those two years? What happened to you personally? Like, what were you up to? But then also, like, what happened to the story itself as it kind of, uh, like, percolated in your subconscious? Mm. So I think about about um, 50% of it came to me. And so in those two years, I finished university and... Um, and then I go, um, I live in Lagos for about a year and I'm working in a bank. Uh, and, uh, with your, with your degree in literature, you're working in a bank. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very natural progression. I'm telling you, I'm there as it should be. <laughs> so, so I'm there and, um, and I have a panic moment. There's, there's a moment when I become terrified that I will never be able to write again. Because I, I'm, I'm living in Lagos, which is a very, very busy city. It's hectic. And I'm working in a place called Marina. And I'm living in a place called Ujiju. But what it means is that I'm out of the house by... 15 minutes past 5 in the morning so I can get to work on time and sometimes I don't get back home until just before midnight and I spent hours and hours in traffic and it's 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 just and I realized that for the first time since I was maybe 9 or so I I go for months without getting any ideas for a short story or, or a poem or something. And I just stop writing. And I just become very terrified. I'm so afraid that I will have a life that I don't want. Um, and which I would not be able to get away from because it looks good enough. And it looks like, what more could you want? So I start writing this book because I'm afraid that I'll never be able to write again. And I think that I need to make a commitment to something as big as a novel. And really, that's why I started at that time. But there, like and fear, fear is a great motivator, you know, and being <laughs> trapped. I'm, I'm imagining that the job at the bank was not incredibly inspiring. No, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, but so if you're getting up at 5.15 in the morning and you're getting home mm. like shortly before midnight and you're stuck in traffic mm. and all this stuff, mm. uh, like how are you writing a book? Like were you writing on the job? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I did most of my work. I, I did most of the writing while I was in traffic because I wasn't driving. Um, it was a relatively, I mean, it was a big bank. It was one of the big ones. So we had a staff bus. So I could just sit down and just sit in traffic. So I had this phone at the time. I didn't even, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't carry my laptop to work. It was always at home. And I would just type sentences, you know, and would be in traffic on top of the bridge and would be sitting on top of this beautiful body of water and the sun will be coming down and I would just write about that while I was in traffic 
And during, on Saturday morning, I would take all of that and put it on a Word document and then write, you know, um, and sort of build on the fragments I'd been gathering during the week. But um, so wait, can I stop you? I, I, you when you mm-hmm. were, when you're on the bus, you were really just responding mm-hmm. to your natural environment. You weren't working with characters or settings like you were just basically looking out the window and responding. And then you would later integrate those um, writings into story somehow. Um, so, I mean, I was also working with these characters, but I know that I remember the first day I did this. You know, and I remember it was just that I looked out and I saw something I wanted to describe. And I felt like I had the right sentence. You know, it just came and I put that down. And after a while, I started thinking about characters. You know, I started listening to what my colleagues were saying and stealing pieces of dialogue while I was in traffic. But what I tried to do was sort of be consistent on and it was always when I was going back home in the evening never in the morning because I still wanted to sleep it was 5 a.m so in the morning I would probably just sleep all the way until we got to work and well but you're not you're nocturnal you're nocturnal yeah (laughs) no Lagos messes everything (laughs) at least it did for me I was just exhausted all the time and on the way back, I would just sort of write the sentences on my phone and imagine that I could still do this thing, you know. Well, I, I think it, I, was, I was really terrified <laughs> for a couple of months that I would never write again. So, okay, so here's an interesting question that may terrify you even further. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, because it's like it brings up an interesting question. Is that like, mm. you know, clearly that fear was what yeah. drove you to um, such artistic heights. Like, w- ah. <laughs> if you're writing another book, do you need to be operating from a similar place of fear, or can you find a new, like, source? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, have you ever thought yeah. about that? I mean, I don't think that... I don't know. I mean, I, I have a mental... I have a number I always think about, and it's the number seven. And I think to myself... When I've written my seventh novel, I'll really be sure about this, you know. So I don't think that, I don't think it's quite gone away, you know. Um, because I feel like there's the, there's the showing up and then there's the work and then there's the putting the paragraphs and the sentences together. But there's also something intangible that I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like, what if I wake up and it's not there? Like I said, maybe I'm just paranoid, you know. So this, this, I think it's this. It's sort of still there. I think with with each new project, with um, with with everything. I don't think I've ever got gone into writing something feeling. I know exactly what I'm doing. So you I'm are going to get it done. <laughs> you you are blessed with an innate fear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how much of a blessing it is yeah. because it, it can also paralyze sometimes. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. Um, so there's, there's there's always that, 
and I, of course, I do have moments when I've actually done it, when I feel satisfied. And I'm like, oh, you know, sometimes I write a paragraph and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm so brilliant. <laughs> and then, you know, you look at it the next morning and you're like, oh, God, what is this? You know, but there are those moments, but it never happens before I've done the work. It just doesn't happen that way. Right. <laughs> Even when I have all the ideas, there's still, can I pull this off? Can all these things work together? Do I? Why am I doing this? Do I know what what this is? You know. Well, yeah, it takes a while to get there. I mean, you're you're starting out with like just these flashes and these bits and pieces, mm-hmm. and you know, you're you're not operating. It sounds like with some, like uh, like like the the first draft is very uh, disparate in terms of its elements, and then it's the work that you do from that point forward where you're actually trying to figure out how to kind of weave it all together and whether or not it even is weavable. Yes. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't think that I don't feel that I've written something until I don't think that I've started a project until I've written the first draft, you know, mm. like, I feel like that's when I, I like, okay. That's when I really start writing does that make sense? Well, no, it does. It, a couple, it. no, a couple, you know, because like you, you have to kind of. I think a lot of people are this way, and maybe this is just the natural course of things for writers. Period is that you have to get something on paper to work with first mm, before yeah. you before you can even begin to see the thing clearly. And then another thing that comes to mind as I listen to you is that I have had conversations with a smaller handful of writers, but it feels like that handful is growing. Who write on mm. their who write at least a draft of their book on their phones and mm. do it in their car or in transit. And I've been, mm. I've been thinking about this lately in the context of my own life, how I just want to kind of go for a drive and like pull into the parking lot. Cause like my friend, Melissa, mm. Bro- my friend, Melissa Broder does this. She like gets mm. in, she gets in her car and she goes for a drive and she'll like pull off into like a parking lot at a grocery store. And she will, mm. ta- she will talk into her phone the first draft of her oh book using voice to text. And then um, I had a conversation on this show with a writer named Bud Smith, who, mm. you know, works as a, uh, I think he's like a boilermaker. He works like some, mm. you know, job in uh, Jersey where he's, you know, outside and working with his hands all day. And then he has like a lunch break mm. and he'll be typing on his phone or he'll be on the subway or whatever mm. it is. You know, he's, he's kind of hammering out novels into his phone. Like that's a real thing in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, recently I've been doing voice notes more often because, um, I mean, I've been doing quite a bit of traveling. Maybe I'm at a festival or something, and I just talk to the phone, you know. And what I've been, something I started doing maybe like a month ago, which I wasn't, I'd never done before, was. I mean, I started writing on a plane. I somehow, I just tend to sleep when I'm flying. But I just realized uh, at some point early this year that I have to do something with this time because I, I'm spending so much time in the hair these days. So, yeah, I I think it's, it's you just, it's it's making time, I think, and being able to do it no matter what. Because life doesn't stop. <laughs> no, no. And, but it also feels like in a weird way, um, because we talk about needing stillness as writers, we talk about needing mm. s- space and quiet. But like, yeah, the, the, the odd thing is that like being in a car or being on public transportation or whatever, being in an airplane, 
these almost seem like some of the last remaining refuges, especially an airplane, though they're starting <laughs> the, the Internet is starting to infiltrate airplanes like you can't you know, you can't escape it there either. But like it, it feels yeah. like these are some of the last places where you can be like alone and it is sort of mm. quiet and you can sort of get away. Yeah. It's like I think what's mm. a, what's attractive to me about writing in a car on a phone is that if you put mm. your if you put your phone on on airplane mode, so you're not yes. getting messages and mm-hmm. you're you're sort of encased in your car, you know, like no one can hear you, no one can see you. <laughs> that, that sounds delightful to me. I could just get away, and no one knows where you are. You know, it's a, there's a sort of creative freedom that I could uh, I can totally relate to that could mm. be that could be born in that situation or on a bus, you know, where you're sort of anonymous or you know, it sounds mm. like it doesn't sound like you were chatting with people on this bus. Um, you sort of just in route to work and on your way home and. Gives you mm. a, a little space to work, and you, you, you know. There, and there's also something about being in motion, you know, that I think can lend itself to creativity. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's probably something to that. That the idea of being in motion, and um, also in some sense, feeling like you're static. You know, I think that's that's the feeling they get when you're on like a particularly smooth flight. You you know you're traveling, but there's that also there's also that feeling of oh, are we moving at all you know i sometimes look out of the window like i said i can't be paranoid so um there's there's something to that i think that um you are in this capsule of sorts mm. and you can sort of focus sometimes it, it helps you to focus okay so let's and talk just, of oh go ahead yeah, and just get the words on the page. <laughs> yeah, I mean that you got to do that before you can do anything else. And I think maybe mm. to some extent, getting that the words on the page for that first draft—that's the hardest part. You know, it's just like finding the time and the energy to um, like get those, you know, whatever it is—seventy thousand words, fifty thousand words, a hundred thousand words—like getting something in front of you to work with. And starting from zero, you know, and working on a blank page, to me, seems like maybe the biggest challenge. Yeah, it feels that way. It's, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so let, so let's, uh, let's talk about the publication of Stay With Me. Let's talk about yes. you, you finish the book. You go through the process mm. and then you find a, I'm imagining you find a literary agent. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I do. Um... Yeah, I find a literary agent, and um, so at a point, I yes, I I did an MA in literature, then I decided to do another MA in creative writing, but this time I go to England, and um, just before I leave for England, I think this must have been in 2014, I find an agent, and um, so I go off to England. I think I'm sort of kind of almost done with this book, but of course I'm not. And um, I start writing another book while I'm doing the MA. And um, and I'm just doing what I felt were final edits on Stay With Me. And then I send that to my agent. And shortly after that, it leaves publishing. And um, so I don't have an agent anymore. And then I find another agent. Okay. (laughs) Were these agents in the UK or were they in Nigeria? Yes. um, These agents were in the UK. I mean, the first agent was in the UK. And then 
um, yes, then I think a couple, a year later, I find another agent also in the UK, and she's she's still my agent now. And um, so she, we we have a discussion because by that time I'm back at home, and so we talk on the phone, and she tells me. Oh, there's something wrong with the ending. You need to, f- and and we have this long conversation about the end. And so I spend, I think, a couple of months working on it some more, and then I send it back to her. And I think I send it back to her in December of twenty twenty fifteen, and then in January she sends it out. Yes. And what happens? First in the. Um, yeah, she sends it out in the UK and, um, a couple of publishers become interested. Um, and then, yes, so the first, I mean, I, the first offer came on my birthday and that, that, that was just so wonderful and marvelous. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember I was I was driving home. I'd gone out for dinner with my sister, and I was driving, and then I had to park because she was calling me, and it was good news. She'd gotten the first offer for the book, and so I think that was in January, and then by February, I I mean I talked to about three editors and just have a sense of what they want to do with the book and what they think it is and I finally make a decision and I think within a couple of weeks it's sold in the US too so I get to work with both editors at the same time that's that's pretty good and like when did you have a sense like I mean did, did, I guess like right away when you have multiple interests that's a good sign you know that the book is registering uh, that there's something about it that people are really responding to. But like, at what point did you get the sense that this debut was going to be um, kind of the, the dream debut or like that it was going to be different, different from what the ordinary debut tends to be, which is, uh, you know, very few copies sold, not very many reviews, certainly not reviews in high profile, um, you know, papers and so on and so forth. Like at what point did you mm. sense a gathering momentum? I think, I mean, once the book was sold and I had to sort of do the edits and send them in and send in final stuff, um, I tried not to think about it because I think that, I mean, I, I guess this happens to anybody who's been on an MA program is that I think one of the good things I learned was that I learned to manage my expectations, you know, um, I I mean, I I just couldn't allow myself to think that I could get luckier than I had already, you know. So, um, but my UK publisher, and they they published first, they published in March. They were so enthusiastic about this book. And I remember feeling a little bit terrified of their enthusiasm because I just felt, well, what if nobody else likes this book? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know and they made it their lead debut and really got behind it you know and um 
did a lot of um, galleys. I think did about two print runs of galleys, and it was exciting, you know, to see people be so excited about the book. But I was just always worried that this old venture would be a disappointment, you know, for it. Well, sort of all the people involved. Well, I was going to say, like, when you're publishing, all these people at your publishing house, from the editor to the marketing and publicity people up and down the line, when they're all excited about it in, the, in advance of publication, I can, mm-hmm. I can see how that would be disconcerting because what if the book goes out onto the market and then does not perform sales-wise and disappoints their expectations or, like, somehow deflates their enthusiasm yeah i mean i i i I really thought about this i mean of course i couldn't tell them that but you know i kept thinking oh my god really (laughs) you think this book is going to do all that and then um it came out in march in the uk and i was there to do a couple i mean i was there to do a tour and i think it comes it came out on the second of march and six days later, it's long listed for the Bailey's Prize. And I think that was the moment, you know, that was it. And I think that the long list came out at midnight. And I'd, I'd done an event the previous day where it was, I mean, there were a lot of people there who were in publishing and it was a whole they were talking about who was going to be on the long list and all of that. And I got to back to the, the flat where I was staying in London. And I thought to myself, oh, do I want to stay up till midnight and just see who's on the long list? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to sleep, you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll hear about it in the morning. And because there was a book I touched, I wanted to be there, which wasn't there at the end of the day. I, that was what I was really concerned about. And then I woke up and saw that my phone kept vibrating. It was on the bedside table and for a moment I was worried. I thought, what's going on? You know, why why what has something bad happened? Is somebody trying to get in touch with me from home? <laughs> isn't it no, isn't yeah, that isn't that funny it. how when your phone like, when my phone rings I'm always like, Oh shit, what happened? Doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's always terrible. Yeah. So I I then pick it up and realize that my my publicist that sent me this message congratulations you know and I thought oh that's so sweet of her she's still congratulating me for this book that's come out <laughs> we can go <laughs> and then I, I check my email and I get oh the Bailey Surprise is now following you on Twitter and I think that's when I thought oh my god what has happened and then I went on Twitter and saw the announcement and I think that was the moment that I realized that Wow, this 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 is this this book is going to be everything that I, I couldn't allow myself to imagine it could be in terms of the reception and the attention it would get and all of that. Because so, it had been barely it had it, it wasn't even up to a week from publication. Wow, that that was mind blowing. So how has it changed your life? Ah. <laughs> I think it has. Yeah, I think it has. Um, uh, I don't know if I can quite um, articulate it fully yet. 
Oh, yes. And there was another moment. How could I forget this? And this was before the book came out. I think it was in January when Margaret Hatwood tweeted about it. And my publishers had sent her a proof. And she, she tweeted this very generous praise about it on Twitter. And I just thought... And I think that was just like, you know what? If everybody hates this book, I don't care. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't care anymore. You can all hate this book. And I will still think you're wrong. Margaret Hatwood loves it. So, you know, nobody can talk to me anymore. That's a good sign. <laughs> Yeah, that that was unexpected and also mind blowing. So it, it's it's sort of I think um, I think I'm busier than I, than I would have been otherwise. You know, you're not working at a bank because, anymore. I don't think, right? No, I'm I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. So there's 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 that there's that. I think that now I I feel like. I have a kind of freedom um, to pursue this thing that really wasn't, you know. There's there's no curry. I mean, there's, there's really no there are no guarantees when you choose to invest your life in an artistic pursuit, you know. And um, it, it's I, I just feel like. I I have um, I think I just have a kind of freedom that I probably didn't feel that I had before. It's it's just something in my head, but I I feel like it's there now. And um, like I said, I'm busier than I was before, uh, and um, I'm just I I don't know. I I think it's probably something I'll think about. A decade from now, yeah, because it's still a little bit astonishing to me. You know, it's just astonishing. Are you working on another book? Yes, I am actually. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'd, I'd been working on this one before I finished Stay with Me, actually, because I think at a point I thought I would never finish it. <laughs> I might as well start another book. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah but um it still it still feel like feels like conceptually it's still it's still not where it's still not solid it's not still not concrete enough for me so yeah maybe you'll need to fun. just you'll have to you'll have to start riding like public transportation just to get yourself going <laughs> Yeah, I might try that. <laughs> I might try that. Well, I'll tell you what. I uh, I have so enjoyed talking with you from halfway around the world. I appreciate you taking the time, and I uh, I offer you my congratulations on a remarkable debut, and I wish you well going Thank forward. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been really lovely. All right, folks, there you go. That is Ayobami Adebayo. Her debut novel is called Stay With Me. It is available now from Knopf. Go get your copy. You can find her online at ayobamiadebayo.com. She's on Facebook. She is on Twitter. Her handle on Twitter is at Ayobami Adebayo. You can find her on Instagram. You can find her on Goodreads. You can find her on your computer. She's on your computer right now. Track her down. 
Ayobami Adebayo, the novel, one more time, is called Stay With Me. And uh, I just, I, what, a, what a delightful person. I had such a nice time talking with her. I have to believe that you guys uh, enjoyed her as well. She was just uh, wonderful. So glad to have her on the show. Going to be interested to see what she publishes next. Uh, certainly one of the most well-received debuts of the year and uh, someone to watch. So thanks to Kill Rockstars as usual for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com letters at otherppl.com send me an email tell me a story let me know what you think of the show uh you know uh, criticism praise whatever it is or something totally unrelated i like when people email me and just tell me stories about their lives i can't be the only person out here experiencing uh you know operatic tragedies involving calendar syncing and unnecessary apologies like weird obsessive guilt like I think it's a good thing that I felt bad that shows that I have uh, a sense of like what's the word I care what people think I don't want to do people wrong but I think that I took it to an extreme by not being able to sleep like there's a point at which it becomes counterproductive and unnecessary and I need to work on that I'm aware of it So tomorrow, hopefully, I will conduct this interview and we'll find out what the uh, situation is. Does this woman uh, think I'm crazy? Probably. So what I've decided is that if if things go well, if as I expect them to, if I conduct the interview, it's basically fine. Nothing major happens. Then I won't I won't talk about this again. But if for some reason things go sideways then, of course, I will uh, let you know next week. The drama will continue in that case. So I'm trying to think of what else. I, you know, it's just been a long Saturday. I do these shows on Saturday. I have conducted uh, six interviews today, and I've done this show. I'm ready to, uh, ready to go inside lie down in a dark room not talk to anybody for six hours of course that's not possible no rest for the weary so I'm looking up at the ceiling and my skylights are dirty I have two skylights in this garage and they're dirty and I'm wondering like do people clean their skylights is that a thing Do I need to get like a ladder and some Windex? You clean a skylight with Windex, right? It's just a window. Get a squeegee. Some paper towels. So I have I have some really good shows coming up. I've had uh, I had a conversation this morning that I feel very good about, and uh, I had another one on Thursday. People have been coming over. And uh, sitting down with me, which is always delightful when I get to see people in person. So be on the lookout in the weeks to come for some uh, exciting new episodes of this program. Don't forget to get the app. Don't forget to, uh, oh yeah, Patreon. If you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, that's uh, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Otherwise, I hope you have a nice day, whatever day of the week it happens to be.
go easy on yourself. Just go easy on yourself if you, uh, you know what I mean. I'm sorry. (laughs) 